0: John 10:22 to 30 My sheep John 10:22 At that time the feast of the dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. The Jews therefore gathered around him and were saying to him, "How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly." Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these bear witness of me. But you do not believe, because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they shall never perish. And no one shall snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Amen. Heavenly Father, as we approach this passage of Scripture, we ask that you will teach us, encourage us, and show us, Lord, from this passage, that we are indeed those sheep who belong to you because of your grace and you will always and forever protect us. Thank you for this truth. In the name of Christ, amen. Our passage is a follow-up to the previous one where Jesus has been preaching and discoursing on him being a good shepherd. This is after the incident of the blind man who was healed in chapter 9. And now, sometime later... He continues his analogy of sheep and shepherd. This is what he focused on in chapter 10, verses 1 to 18. This analogy, a picture of sheep and shepherd. This continues in 22 to 30. But it's a different occasion. The same subject or same analogy, but a different occasion. This occasion is at the feast of the dedication. This is one of the two feasts that are not mentioned in the law of Moses. The occasion for this, it says it's in Jerusalem where he went. It was the winter time and Jesus was in this locality or this location, specific location in the temple, the portico of Solomon. Well, firstly, the feast of the dedication What is this feast? This feast, just like the Feast of Purim in the book of Esther, are two feasts mentioned in the Bible, one in the Old Testament book of Esther and this one here in John chapter 10, where these two are not mentioned in the law of Moses. Moses instituted several festivals or feasts, but these two are not. The Feast of Purim, is in the book of Esther, instituted from that day forward. And then here in John 10, verse 22, the Feast of the Dedication. This Feast of the Dedication was established in 164 B.C. 164 B.C. by a certain Judas Maccabeus. Judas Maccabeus. The book of Maccabees in the intertestamental period, which is typically found in the... Uh, apocryphal books of other denominations, the book of Maccabees, that, those sets of books commemorate or, and record things that happened in that period of time, around 164 B.C. What happened at that time, and why is this called a Feast of Dedication? It's called a Feast of Dedication, or in modern times, the Jews use the Hebrew word Hanukkah, Hanukkah Hanukkah in Hebrew means dedication. This is usually the one that's celebrated in December, in December around Christmas time for Christians. This is the same festival. Um, It's also known as the Festival of Lights because one of the ancient writers who records this festival and its establishment and its practice he refers to it as the Festival of Lights. And they did, they did light lights at this time, or lamps at this time, in commemoration. What happened in 164 BC? The Jews were under the domination. They were slaves of the Greeks. They were slaves of the Greeks. They were under the, the Greek Empire at that time. This is the same Greek Empire of Alexander the Great or Alexander of Macedon, this same empire from 332 or 331 BC to 63 BC, then the Romans conquered the Greeks. But in 164 BC, in the time of the Greeks, there was a Greek, a Greek ruler named Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus Epiphanes, also called Antiochus IV, this Antiochus Epiphanes, he was so adamantly against the Jews that he took a pig, a swine, and he took that and he had it sacrificed on the altar in the temple of Jerusalem. We know from Leviticus 11, Deuteronomy 14, that pigs were considered unclean animals for sacrifice. They were not to be placed on the altar, so Antiochus, knowing this, took an unclean beast and had it put on the altar of God in Jerusalem. Well, Judas Maccabeus, he and others, revolted successfully against that. And then when they dedicated the altar, they rededicated it, that is, they cleansed it, they conducted rituals to cleanse it and to make it suitable for the worship of God again with animals being sacrificed on it. So that feast of dedication began at that time. It's a dedication, meaning rededicating after Antiochus desecrated, defamed, made unclean that altar. That's what is happening here. And Jesus is at that festival. This was in the winter, as we said, typically which corresponds to our December. And that's why we often hear of the Hanukkah celebration of the Jewish people who are not Christians. They celebrate that around the time of Christmas. Not exactly on Christmas Day. They don't always coincide that way. But roughly in December, that's why the Apostle John here says it was winter, around the winter time. Jesus is walking there while they are celebrating. The Jews, however, though they are supposed to celebrate, it's supposed to be a joyous time. It's supposed to be a time of commemoration of something good that happened in their history. They don't use it as a joyous time. They use it as a contentious time. They approach Christ to pick a fight with Him. They are not focused on the worship of God when they should be, joyously. Instead, they are focused on picking a fight with Christ, being contentious with Christ. Verse 24, The Jews, therefore, gathered around Him. It says, they gathered around Him. Jesus didn't bring up anything. They brought up something to pick a fight with Him. They were grumblers, and this is what happens right here. And they were saying to him in verse 24, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Isn't that irony right there? They accuse Christ of keeping them in suspense. Any casual reading of the scripture up to this point in John 10 shows. Nobody is being kept in suspense. Nothing is a surprise from the time of John the Baptist onward. And even then, you could go back farther into Daniel the prophet, who has a chronology of when they should expect Christ to appear. Isaiah has many prophecies of Christ, so forth. There are many in the Old Testament. So they should not have been in suspense in any way at that time, and especially because of John, John the Baptist, and even whatever Jesus was preaching. There shouldn't have been any of that. And yet, grumblers, grumblers who want to quarrel, pick a fight, they bring up things in a wrong way. They say, you've been keeping us in suspense. Stop doing that. This is one of those questions. How long will you keep us in suspense This assumes that Jesus has been keeping them in suspense when that's not the case. They make a false assumption with their question to accuse Him. Typical of grumblers and disputers looking to contend. This is what they do. Further, 24, if you are the Christ, tell us plainly, plainly, Christ or Jesus, you, Jesus of Nazareth, you... You're always speaking in ambiguous terms. You're always cloudy and fuzzy. You're always muddy. You don't tell us openly. You don't tell us plainly. You're playing tricks and games with us, is the implication. That they are hearing Christ, not in plain spoken language. That's not the, the case either. That's not the case that Jesus was never plainly telling them who he was, why he came into the world, what will happen, what they would do to him. He was plain on many occasions about these matters. 25. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. There Jesus says it in his own words to their face. He's saying I did not keep you in suspense. I told you I was the Christ and I told you plainly. I told you all of these things. I told you and you do not believe. The problem with complainers, the problem with grumblers and disputers, the problem with quarrelers is not that the information isn't there. The problem is not That the messenger, typically speaking, like Christ here, that the messenger has been confusing. The messenger doesn't know what he's saying. The messenger has not been plain spoken. That's not the problem. The problem is, I told you and you do not believe. The problem is, they know exactly what the claims are. They know exactly what the truth claims are. They know precisely. But they don't want to believe they do not believe that is the problem further christ vindicates his words by saying the works verse 25 the works that i do in my father's name these bear witness of me the works that i do in my father's name these testify of me the works The miracles he performs in the name of who? My Father, these testify of me. How could he perform the miracles that he performed on the Sabbath day, such as in John chapter 5? How is it possible for him to do that and not? be endorsed by God. How could he do it in John chapter 9? On the Sabbath day, perform a miracle, a stunning miracle, and not have the Father's approval. He's alluding to that fact. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. I've been saying it, and I've been doing it, And indisputably, if you were to be fair, if you were to be objective, you would see what I've been saying and you would believe. 26 though. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. The problem they have, yes, certainly they do not believe. He accuses them of that in 25. But he also says in 26, the reason they don't believe has to ultimately do with the fact that they are not of his sheep. They don't believe because of their sin, which is all very true. John has spoken of the flesh and sin, such as John 6.63. Christ has in John 6.63 in the book of John. And in John 3, 6, John 3, 8, about the flesh and what the flesh produces. John 1, 12, and 13. The flesh doesn't produce anything good. Nothing like that. So he has said things like that about the flesh. But ultimately, if God wanted to overcome the flesh, he would have done so. By those who are his sheep, God does overcome their flesh so that they believe. That's the point Jesus makes in verse 26. He's saying, if you were my sheep, you would believe. If you were my sheep, preordained sheep, predestined sheep, if you were my sheep before the foundation of the world, you would now believe. But since you're not that, you don't believe. The hinge is not belief, the hinge is sheep. If Jesus said, You are not of my sheep because you don't believe, then the hinge would be on belief or faith. But it doesn't work that way. It works in the reverse way, in the way that most people don't consider, most people don't believe. The moment we say that, that God predetermines who will be his sheep or who are his sheep, and it does not depend on our faith. The moment we say that, we become very detestable in their hearing. They don't like to hear that. Yet that's what Jesus said here in 26. Further, 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Who is it that follow Christ? Who is it that Christ knows? Who is it that listens to His voice? His detractors, His enemies, the Jews of of verse 24, they are not listening to His voice. They hear His voice audibly, but they don't hear His voice spiritually. They hear His voice in terms of sounds, But they don't hear His voice internally in terms of their heart. They don't hear Him. They don't want to hear Him. Who then does hear Him in the proper way? The sheep. My sheep. He has said that twice now. 26, my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. If we truly belong to Christ, we will listen to the voice of Christ. His voice by His Holy Spirit and by His Word. We will listen to His voice because those two voices, the Spirit of Christ and the Word of Christ, speak in unison. They don't contradict each other. Those who are His sheep listen to Him. He knows them and they follow Him. What is the outcome? What is it? If the sheep belong to the shepherd, the good shepherd, the great shepherd of the sheep, if the sheep belong to him, what is the outcome or what is the protection, what is the benefit that these sheep have with this particular good shepherd, Christ? What is it? Eternal life. Eternal life. They shall never perish. Eternal life. We will never perish, and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. The hand of Christ, usually the hand, and often the right hand, is a symbol of strength, because for, for most people, most are right-handed, and it is the arm or the hand of strength. The right hand. no Christ has such a strong and powerful, mighty right hand That no one can open it, no one can snatch his sheep out of his hand. Like Isaiah 40. The mighty power of God, the mighty power of God protects his own people, protects his own sheep. The mighty hand of God. Verse 29. Not only of God, that is Christ the Son of God, verse 28. But the Father, in verse 29, my Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. The Father who is greater than all, meaning the Father is supreme in rank and authority. The Father sends the Son into the world. The Father and the Son send the Spirit into the world. So in this sense... Certainly among all creatures, no one is as great as the Father. But even in the Trinity, the Father has first place. He's the first person of the Trinity, of the Holy Trinity. The second person of the Holy Trinity is the Son. The third person of the Holy Trinity is the Holy Spirit. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is greater. So, those who belong to, to my Father, the Father of Jesus, no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. If we have double strength, the strength of the Son and the strength of the Father, we are in their hand, no one can take us away. No one can cause us to perish. No one will snatch us away. No wolf will come. No stranger will come. No wild beast will come, meaning the false teachers, and take us away. We will always, always, both now and forever. Isn't that what he said in verse 28? Eternal life, never perish. It's eternal life, never perish. This is what awaits us. This is what we enjoy. We who are his sheep. 30. I and the Father are one. If we wanted to emphasize and translate a bit more literally, we could say, I and the Father, we are one. I and the Father, we are one, in verse 30. What does Christ assert here? There are some interpreters who take it one way or the other, It's actually a matter of both. There are some interpreters who think this is merely an expression of deity. Others say it's merely an expression of their one purpose. Deity and purpose, either or. However, in this context, even in the subsequent paragraph that concludes this context, it has to do with both. It has to do with both. Certainly, the purpose is here. They have one purpose that no one is going to be able to snatch them out of their, their hand, the hand of the Father and the hand of the Son. So that's the same purpose. The Father and the Son have the same goal, same purpose, same intention for the sheep that are in their hand, right? That's certainly the case there. But also, the deity of Christ is in view here. The deity of Christ. After all, look at 25. He says, My Father. My Father. He says in verse 29. My Father. When He says, My Father, in a previous incident, they wanted to stone Him to death. They wanted to put Him to death. In John 5, 17 and 18. They wanted to put him to death. Well, what do they do here when they hear, I and the Father, we are one. 31. The Jews took up stones again to stone him. Again, to stone him. And then Jesus defends himself. They accuse him of blasphemy. Verses 33. Uh, verse 33. They accuse him of Blasphemy there and in 36. But it's not blasphemy if it's true. It would only be blasphemy if the Father and the Son both were not the one God. Father, Son, and Spirit, three persons, one God. If it were untrue, then they would be in the right to call it blasphemy and then act accordingly. But if it's not blasphemy... They have no right to pick up stones to throw at him, to try to put him to death. Correct? So this statement, I and the Father, we are one, has to do both with Jesus making a claim to deity and being one in purpose with the Father. Since we are both God in nature, we have the same purpose, is the point he's making. I and the Father, we are one. Let's now go back and review some of the points that were mentioned in brief. When we come to verses 24 to 25, what evidence do we have that Jesus did not, Jesus and John, John, his forerunner, his predecessor, that John the Baptist and Jesus did not keep the people as they claim here, in suspense, never told the people that Jesus was the Christ, never spoke plainly. Let's see some evidence that they're not telling the truth. They're not telling the truth. John chapter 1. John chapter 1, verse 15. John 1.15. This John in one fifteen is John the Baptist not John the Apostle. John the Apostle and John the Baptist are not the same man. We're not the same man. They were different. And John 1.15, this is John the Baptist. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. John cried out. He didn't keep it a secret. Right. And it says, the one coming after me has a higher rank. Why? For he existed before me. He existed before me. Does John the Baptist mean that since Jesus was born before I was born, he is older than I. He existed before I did. No, because in Luke chapter one, we read that John actually was six months older humanly speaking, older than Christ, when Christ was born into the world. John was six months older. So John's not talking about physical age, he's talking about eternity, that Christ is eternal. He's saying this clearly, and the people would have known, everybody would have known, John the Baptist was born six months before Jesus was. Or if they wanted to verify his words, they could have simply asked John's parents, or Jesus' parents, or siblings, too. They could have asked who was older than the other, one and the other. Another example of this we find in verse 23. He said, John said, John the Baptist, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. John one twenty-three. John says, I am somebody crying in the wilderness, preparing the way of the Lord, the Lord Jesus, preparing his way, just as Isaiah said in Isaiah chapter 40. Furthermore, verse 29, John 129, the next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Verse 34, and I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. John is preaching these things publicly to the people. Nobody there was keeping suspense. What about John chapter 5? John chapter 5. In John 5, Jesus healed this man who was 38 years in his Sickness in his disease, and Jesus healed him on the Sabbath day, and to justify doing so, John 5 17. But he answered them, My Father is working until now, and I myself am working. For this cause, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own Father, making himself Equal with God. They knew when he said, My Father, that he was making himself equal with God. Who else would do this but the Christ, the Messiah? The Messiah that John was preaching. They understood openly, Jesus said that openly, and they clearly understood it. That's why they thought he was blaspheming in chapter 5 and wanted to put him to death. And then we have in John chapter 9. John chapter 9. The parents of the blind man. John 9, 22. His parents said this, because they were afraid of the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess him, to be Christ he should be put out of the synagogue so the jews already knew that jesus of nazareth was claiming to be the christ and that john the baptist was preaching and teaching people that jesus of nazareth was indeed the christ they knew that they didn't want to believe in it and they made this agreement this threat that they would excommunicate from the synagogue anybody who confessed jesus to be the Christ. They knew it, the Jews. So we know now clearly that these Jews of John 10:24 to 25 they are fabricating an accusation against Christ. Usually this is the way it happens with skeptics, unbelievers, the wicked Grumblers, disputers, quarrelers, people who are looking to pick a fight, they rail against the messenger in these ways. The messenger is plain and clear enough, but they refuse to believe, just like they did with Christ. It will also be that way with us. People will do the same with us. It doesn't matter, pastor or not, they will do so with us. We speak honestly, we speak in good faith, we speak sincerely, we tell them exactly what the Bible says, and then they will accuse us falsely like this here. Furthermore, furthermore we have that in John 10:26 to 27, 26 to 27 my sheep if john 10:26 to 27 isn't clear enough for those who refuse to believe this doctrine of predestination election preordination if we don't want to believe it can we see that john is trying to make this point absolutely clear let's go let's go to john chapter 8, John chapter 8, verse 43, John 8, 43. Why do you not understand what I am saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. You cannot hear my word. He's saying, you all do not have the ability, the capability, the power to believe. You don't have it. You cannot hear my word. Why not? 847. He who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason, you do not hear them because you are not of God. If they were of God, in the language of chapter 10, if they were His sheep, then they would hear these words. Hear to understand, hear to believe, hear to obey. Since they are not of God, they cannot, they do not, they will not, they refuse to hear. Hear to understand, to believe, and be saved. They don't want that. Not at all. John chapter 3 John chapter 3 verse 20 20 to 21 John 3:20 20 to 21 For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed but he who practices the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought In God. A key phrase here the difference between verses 20 to 21 why is it that someone does come to the light and the others do not come to the light? The key phrase or phrase is in verse 20 those who do evil hate the light and they don't want their evil exposed, they don't want their evil to be. Um, coming to rising to the surface. they don't want it in the open light, because if it's in the open light, then the light will shine shame, guilt on their evil. They don't want that. They hate the light. so they do it in darkness. Dirty deeds in darkness. 21. But he who practices the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. Well, who will come to the light? Those who practice the truth. But how do they practice the truth? Having been wrought in God. If they practice what God expects to come to the light, how did that happen? How did they overcome, in verse 20, their desire for evil, their deadness, the flesh? How did they overcome all of that? When God made it happen in them. How does He make it happen? By calling us, regenerating us by His Spirit, giving us life when we had deadness. That's how He makes us come to the light, wanting the truth, practice the truth. He causes us to be that way. We further further read in John chapter 6. John 6 of the same thing. We'll read John 6:35 to 37. 6:35 to 37. Jesus said to them, "I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe." All that the Father gives me shall come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. In 35, we are supposed to come to him and believe in him. Coming and believing, synonyms of the same thing. Embracing him in faith. He means that. In in 36, he says that they don't believe. Why don't they believe? He's told them that they need to believe but they don't believe. Why don't they believe? 37, all that the Father gives me shall come to me, shall believe in me. But what's the hinge? The criterion is whether God gives them to the Son. If God gives them to the Son, they come to the Son. They believe in the Son, and the Son won't cast them out. Jesus means the same thing here in John ten twenty six to 27. We come to Christ and we follow the voice of Christ because the Father draws us by His Spirit to listen, to pay attention, to desire, to believe, to ha- desire life, to have life, to come to the truth, to practice the truth, to do our deeds in God. Not our dirty deeds in the flesh, but our good deeds in God. That's what he's saying in 26 to 27. Further, when we do come, when we do believe in him, is this permanent? Is it eternal? Is it temporary? Can it be lost? Many say that when one obtains true salvation... That true salvation can and is lost if a certain egregious, heinous, major, notorious sin is committed. There are some who say that if one has true salvation, one can lose it if he commits some heinous, major, notorious sin. And the moment he commits that sin, he loses salvation. And some of these same people say they can't, those individuals cannot regain it. Once they lose it, they cannot regain it. Instead, they must suffer for it in the life to come. Others say that one who has true salvation can indeed lose it And lose it for any number of sins or any kind of sin. And lose it the next moment, the next hour, the next day. Lose it like that and also regain it. Lose it quickly and regain it quickly. Lose quickly, regain salvation quickly. And this goes back and forth, on and off, on and off, for the rest of their life. And... They also say that if one has confessed all his sins, let's say in a worship service, one has confessed all his sins in a worship service, and then he leaves the service, he walks across the street to his car, but while he's walking across the street to his car to go home, he has a sinful thought in his mind from the parking lot of the church building across the street to his car. He has some kind of sinful thought and then a car comes by and hits him and he dies on the spot. What happens to him? They say he goes to hell. He lost his salvation because of that sinful thought. We're talking about the second category of people who say salvation can be lost as soon as you lose it you can regain it, lose it, and regain it. That's the second category of belief. Now, a third category of belief, a false belief on this matter, has to do with people who say, they use these cliches once saved, always saved. They also say eternal security, they also speak of grace. They speak of grace, grace all the time, grace. We are not under law, but under grace. They misuse a phrase taken from Romans 6, 14 and 15. We're not under law, but under grace. They say that once we obtain this eternal life, we, no matter what we do, no matter what sin we commit, Because God does not expect holiness, does not expect righteousness, does not expect godliness, we can live however we please, contrary to the word of God, contrary to the Holy Spirit in us, and because we are saved, once saved, always saved, we will never lose that salvation no matter how we live, no matter how we behave. They say salvation is Therefore, is something we obtain forever and we can live as we please, contrary to holiness and righteousness, contrary to being a disciple of Christ. That's what they preach. Sometimes it's called cheap grace, cheap grace, uh, or easy believism, easy believism, cheap grace. Does the Scripture teach any of these? No. Absolutely not. All three of these views are absolutely contrary to the Word of God. Yes, we are to bear fruit for God. We are to bear fruit for God. Yes, we are to produce the uh, the fruit of the Spirit. As we just read in John 3, 21, we ought to have deeds wrought in God. Correct? John 15, apart from me you can do nothing. John 15:8, by this all men will know that you are disciples if you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Or by this is my father glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Yes, righteousness is expected of those who have truly received the grace of Christ. No doubt. But here in John 10, 28 to 29, he's teaching us that the Father and the Son love us so much that our salvation ultimately does not depend on our will. It depends on God's will. And if it depends on almighty God's will, we shall be saved eternally, forever and ever. Because He loves us that much, He protects us that much, we are His sheep that He carries in His bosom. He loves us in that way. This is what our Lord is teaching us here teaching us this kind of permanent salvation John 6:36 let's return to John 6:36 to 40 John 6:36 to 40 but i said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe all that the father gives me shall come to me and the one who comes to me i will certainly not cast out I will certainly not cast out, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. It is the will of the Father that all that the Father gives to the Son, the Son loses none of them. That means in his sheepfold, the good shepherd's sheepfold, he's not going to lose any to the wolves and the foxes. He's not going to lose any of them. But raise up every single one on the last day, on the day of resurrection. Raise us up to eternal life. Verse 40, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him may have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up On the last day. The will of the Father that the Son accomplishes to raise up each and every one of us sheep on the last day, the day of resurrection. Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians 1. We are already placed in heaven. We are already, in God's will, placed in heaven. Of course, literally, we are here on the earth. But spiritually speaking, he's speaking in terms of the certainty, the assurance of our salvation. Ephesians 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ in the heavenly places in Christ. These are the blessings we have. Ephesians 1, verse 20, Which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead at, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Christ literally is there because he ascended into heaven at the right hand of the Father. But who else is there with the Father? Chapter 2, Ephesians 2, 4 to 7. Ephesians 2, 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And raised us up with him in resurrection and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, in order that in the ages to come He might show the surpassing riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. In verses 6 and 7, after mentioning that we were raised up with Christ in resurrection, we were also raised up or seated with Christ in His ascension seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. For what purpose? Verse 7, In order that in the ages to come, for all eternity, forever, He might show the surpassing riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For all eternity, we will experience the surpassing riches of His grace in Christ. How is it possible then if this is what the Scripture teaches for us to lose it. Look at now Philippians 1, verse 6. Philippians 1, 6. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Who is the He who began a good work in us? God. And Paul says he's confident that He who began a good work in us will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Until the day that Christ raises us up from the dead, God will perfect what He started in us from beginning to end. 1 Peter 1. 1 Peter 1. Verses... 3 to 5. First Peter 1, 3 to 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. But how do we know we're going to get there? Verse 5 who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. We know it's there in heaven, reserved in heaven for us, just as Paul said, Peter says now, this inheritance, imperishable, undefiled, unfading inheritance, it's there reserved for us, but we will attain it. We will obtain it. We will reach it in its perfection because right now verse 5 we are protected by the power of God through faith. God will ensure that the true faith he has granted to us will be the true faith that is retained in us and as John says in 1 John 5, 4 and 5 faith is the victory that overcomes the world. Our faith in Christ is a gift of God to us that He will keep within us permanently and we will overcome the world. We will overcome the world, the flesh, and the devil. We will. Because God will protect us through faith. By His mighty power, He will protect us. We are in His hand and no one will snatch us away, including oneself. There are some who say, yes, no one on the outside of us can snatch us away, but we can snatch ourselves away. They say, no, the scripture isn't talking about that. And besides, if we do it, the flesh does not work by itself. The flesh works in conjunction with the devil and the world. The flesh works with outside forces to sin, just like it was in the Garden of Eden, Genesis 3, in the sense that their sinful desire within cooperated with Satan's desire for them to sin. In that same way, we now who are born in sin, though Adam and Eve weren't, we certainly have the flesh that cooperates with Satan and society to sin. No one will snatch us away, including ourselves. Then, finally, verse 30, I and the Father, we are one. We saw, we see, from verses 31 to 39, that they wanted to seize him, they wanted to stone him to death, they accused him of blasphemy, blasphemy, They don't believe that they know that He is claiming deity. We also just saw in John 5, 17 and 18, when He says, My Father, they know He is claiming a unique relationship with God the Father that you and I do not have. Even the Jews do not have. Nobody has that kind of unique relationship. That unique relationship is what Jesus has with the Father. That's why he said, My Father. You will notice that Jesus in the Bible never refers to himself and all of his people as our Father. He always says, My Father, or he teaches us when when we pray to say, Our Father. But he, along with us, never says together, Our Father. Why? Because just like they understood we should understand he was claiming to have a divine nature with the father remember god is spirit john 4:24 god is invisible god is unseen 1st 1 timothy 1:17 1, he is unseen hebrews 11:27 so if god is invisible he is spirit just like our breath Just like our thoughts, just like our words, are invisible. God is invisible. He's unseen. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The Son of God in His deity does not have a body of flesh and bones. His humanity does. The Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Three persons, one God. This is God's nature. Jesus claims that unique Relationship to the Father. If He is that, we must believe so. Because only then, only then will His death benefit us. If we deny His deity, we deny His death. If we embrace His deity, we embrace His death. We cannot negotiate on His deity nor even can we negotiate on his death because if he's a physical perfect man, then he could die. And when he dies, he dies not just for himself, not just for one other or ten others, but for an infinite number of people, the ones that he wants to save. He pays for all of their sins. Because the Jews hated this doctrine, they accused him falsely of blasphemy Because they didn't want to confess their sins. They didn't want to believe in His death and resurrection. They didn't want to believe in His deity. They wanted to think that God's favor was with them when they denied the Son of God. We we cannot be that way. Let Let us, as His sheep, hear His voice and believe. He who has ears to hear... Let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.